0: So, I was doing some research this week, and I researched, and you'll know why here in a second, but I researched the prison system of the United States of America. And I don't know if you know this or not, but there's the, the top three states in the United States with the most people imprisoned uh, in prison uh, per capita. So, your population versus number of people that are incarcerated. Number one was Alabama. Number two was California, and number three was Massachusetts. I don't know if you know this or not, but the United States is, has more per capita people in prison than any other country in the world. And by our population, and then there's 2.5 million people in prison in the United States. 2.5 million people that are unable to live free lives, to live in the freedom... Um, that they would have if they weren't in prison. And obviously, we in this room, we're, we're not in prison. But there is a prison that many of you experience on a daily basis. There's a prison in your life, and that prison is created by money. Our country and people, for the most part, are imprisoned by by money, by debt, by uh, wants, by out-of-control desires. And money causes this prison for us to live in. I think it's the most populated prison <laughs> that we can't see. It's an invisible prison, if you will. We're in a series called Q&A. And what we've been doing over the summer, we started in June and been working through this. This week and next week will, will be the last two messages. We've been going through Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is um, one of the poetry books that was written by King Solomon. And King Solomon was writing this book later in life. King Solomon was a guy that had power. He had money. He had, you know, status, etc. Everything that somebody would say you need to have a good life. And yet at the end of his life, he's kind of regretting. He's lamenting this life. And so he asks all kinds of questions. What's the point of life? Where can I find real happiness? You know, why is life not fair? What happens when you die? And so we've been looking at this book and and these questions realizing that, thank God, we have the rest of the Bible. We have the rest of the scriptures to actually get an answer to these big questions that that life brings us. So today we're going to talk about how much money is enough. I wonder if you yourself or you know somebody that's imprisoned to the lack of money or to debt or to their desire for more stuff their desire for what money can buy here's what he says in ecclesiastes five ten. solomon writes he says whoever loves money never has enough whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income this too is meaningless he uses that phrase over and over. It's meaningless. It's, it's a chasing after the wind. It's, it's the wind. It's vanity. It's empty. So that's a good question to ask yourself. Do I really need more money? How many would say yes? <laughs> You're honest, right, Darcy? Uh, of, of course we would say we need more money, but do we really? What are we looking for when we say we need more? That's really, the word more is what I want to concentrate this morning. Um, you would think that the word more is an, an easily defined word, but I, I like definitions. And I just went to the dictionary, and the word more means in greater quantity, amount, measure, degree, or number. So when you need more, that's kind of what we we are saying when we say that. We need more. So what are we really, I want to ask three questions this morning of ourselves and of this of this book about money and about this desire for more. And what are we really, What are, first of all, what are we really longing for when we long for more money? What are we really longing for? Well, I would say this, first of all, more satisfaction. You can write that down. We're looking for a deeper satisfaction. We're looking for more satisfaction. How many have ever noticed how hard it is and how elusive sometimes the simple things in life that we think are going to satisfy, don't truly satisfy. Um, my favorite snack growing up as a little boy was sour cream Doritos. How many remember when Doritos had sour cream? Anybody? Two of us. Okay, it shows how old I am. They actually had sour cream Doritos. I could eat a whole bag, just ch- 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 chug it like it was a box of cereal. Um, and Little Smokies, you know, the little little uh, hot sausages. I remember my dad, we'd pull into King Supers, I said, Dad, can I get some Little Smokies? He was a good dad. He gave me the Little Smokies, and I'd be in the car. You wonder why I'm fat. But anyway, uh, I just power down. The, I don't do that anymore. I, you can't just eat Little Smokies by the by the package, but I remember that. And we're always kind of just, where's that longing for satisfaction, whether it's food, whether it's money, whether it's stuff? And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of this guy I met several years back, and he's from Africa. He's a missionary in the small country called Burundi, and Burundi is like the poorest country in the whole world, poorer than Haiti. And uh, his name is Painito Umbuku, and he's actually from Kenya, so he's a missionary in, in Burundi. And he came over to the United States. He had had his one of his arms cut off in a car accident many years ago. And he got a prosthetic arm put on. And so he was learning how to use that. And um, so Pinito and I and a couple other pastors, we went to out to breakfast. And we went to the Ralston Road Cafe. And if you've ever been to the Ralston Road Cafe, it is quantity over quality. I mean, forgive me if you work at the Ralston Road Cafe. Good, good enough to eat, but man, the pancakes come out and like... This size. And that's just like the throw on. And then they give you half a loaf of bread for your toast. And then a pile of bacon and the eggs. And it's just so much food. And I remember Pinito ordering his food. And all this food (laughs) was coming out. And he was just like, what? He'd never seen people eat like that before. So we ate and ate and ate. And it was like, we were like four lions that just, you know, ate five water buffaloes. And just, you know, this was... It's good and just trying to recover from the coma that we were in. And, and he was, that night, we were getting together again before church to have dinner. And he couldn't believe we were actually going to eat dinner. He was like, are you kidding me? We're eating again? I've eaten enough for a week. And I thought, man, is that not? That's Americans. Man, we eat and gorge and it's just the satisfaction and that happens in so many areas of our lives. Look what Solomon says. This is just a different translation of that first verse that I gave you. But he said, those who have money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness or satisfaction. Somebody once said that, that our yearning power always exceeds our, yearn, our earning power. Our yearning power exceeds our earning power. You know, the actual amount of wealth that we have versus what we want and we want it to buy, we always want more. We always long for the new thing, the bigger, better deal. And it's not just money itself, but it's what money can buy that we often are looking for. It's the new gadgets. It's the new game. It's the new phone. Apple has us all. They, they must laugh. If you own an iPhone, they must laugh at all of us because they came out with the iPhone 6, right? That's the one that was like the size of an iPad. And you, you've seen people hold it up. And then they already had the iPhone 6 Plus and they probably have the 7, 8, 9, and 10 ready to just lay out and take our money because we got to have the new thing over and over and over. It's hard for us to be satisfied. So when we're longing for more, we're longing for more satisfaction. The second thing I would say is we're longing for more significance. When we want more money and we want more wealth, often we're looking for a status. If I get wealth, if I have more, then people will look up to me. I'll, they'll think I'm more powerful. They'll think I'm I'm better. I'll have this prestige about my life. And we think that it that gives us that significance that we're looking for. And yet Solomon, who was... The wisest man who ever lived, scripture says, and also he was rich. He had so much in his kingdom. A guy who had everything, here's what he said. He said, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. In, in just previous to that he's talking about all the things that he did and all the things that he achieved. I mean, he was Donald Trump, Bill Gates, all these people wrapped in one in the things that that he was doing. So here's what I want you to get from this. The truth is your, if you will, your net worth can never equal your self-worth. How much you have... In your, in, your, in your checking account, or what you own, or how much money you have, don't, whether you have little or whether you have an abundance, don't ever let that mean to you what your self-worth is. You were created by God and for God, and you are redeemed by God with a purpose that goes far, far greater than the amount of money you have or don't have. So don't ever let your net worth equal your self-worth. And then the third thing I think we're longing for is we're longing for satisfaction, significance, and more security. We're longing for more security. How much would it truly take, you know, in your savings account or in your pocket or whatever to make you feel secure? Think about that for a second. I know husbands and wives, there's always a difference um, Wives often want more of a nest egg than the husband you know, is, is worried about. It's just you know, the way God wired us. There's a, there's a security in that. And so when there's a lack, often, uh, I mean, I'm not picking on women, it's just how, how they're wired. You're looking for security. I get it. But how much does it take? How much would it take to make you feel secure? Look what Solomon writes in 5.15. He says, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. I mean, we come into this world butt naked, we leave butt naked. It's just we don't take anything with us. Here's what I want you to understand. The truth is that if you and I put our security in something that can be taken away, such as wealth and money, you're not very secure to start with. If you put your security in something that can be taken away, a person, a job, uh, a career, a a savings account, a 401k, whatever it is, a company. If that can be taken away from you, then you're not very secure. We need to put our security in something altogether different that can't be taken away. And that's the love of God. That's the gospel. And that's eternity. Uh, if you read about the Great Depression that happened in the late 20s, early 30s, that when the stock market crashed, you guys know this, bam, overnight, people lost everything. A great movie to watch about the Great Depression is the movie Cinderella Man. Cinderella Man is the true story about a boxer named Jim Braddock. And uh, what's the guy that played Gladiator. What's it? Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe stars in that. I can't ever remember his name. But uh, he stars as Jim Braddock's. A true story. Actually, we have some autographs of some of the guys he fought. We have autographs that are that old, but I'm bragging. But anyway, um, I don't have Jim Braddock's autograph. I wish I did. But the guy that he fought, I have his, his autograph in a book. But um, Jim Braddock's kind of the poster guy of a guy who had money, had wealth, lost it, and him fighting his way through the depression. Him fighting his way through when everybody lost everything. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 23. He said, Cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone. For they surely they surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Steve Miller, fly like an eagle. Bam, your, your wealth is gone. Two people understood the Steve Miller reference in here. But anyway, Steve Miller had a song, Fly Like an Eagle. Maybe he was... Sing in this proverb, but whatever you and I ultimately find security in, please get this whatever we ultimately find security in is our functioning God, little g. What we find security in, what we're putting our hope in, is truly our God. So I would encourage each of you to put your hope and security in Jesus. And who he is and what he's done for you and what he's promised to do for you, not only in this life, but in the life to come. That is secure and you can take that to the bank. But not only the things that we put our security in, but those other two things. The source of my satisfaction and the source of my significance is also my functioning God. And God created each of us to have my ultimate satisfaction, my significance and security Met in him. And when I'm doing that. When I'm living a life where God ultimately. You're the one who satisfies. God you're the one who makes me significant. Because you created me with purpose. And you redeemed me for a purpose. That goes beyond anything anybody else can do for me. And when we find our security in him and his love. Then he is in his rightful place. Don't ever let anybody or anything else. Be the substitute for your ultimate satisfaction. Significance and security we were created for him to meet those needs let me ask you another question what actually happens when we have more money and wealth this is a good question what actually happens well first of all we have more expenses <laughs> i mean I figured that out the more you have you know the more you spend you the more you have you buy a bigger house now you have more expenses in that house let's say you have more money and you decide you want a nicer newer car so that nicer, newer car is more expensive when that nicer, newer car breaks down, right? Or maybe it takes more gas or better gas or whatever it is. I like my little car because I can still put 85 in it and feel like I'm getting away with something when I fill up my tank versus if I had to put in, you know, a better type of gas or whatever. But the more we think we have, the more the more we have, actually, the more expenses. I like what uh, somebody said one time. He said... If the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, so's the water bill, right? So, you know, if you're watering, you, if somebody's got green grass, so other than our summer here in Colorado, but a typical summer, if you've got green grass, it's because you're spending a lot of money watering that grass. Well, that's true. Solomon said this in 511. He said, the more you have, the more everyone expects from you. Your money won't do you any good. Others will just spend it for you. Amen to that. The other thing that comes when I have more money and wealth is I get more worries. You get more worries. The more you have, you're asking yourself, how do I save this? How do I protect this? How do I invest this? How do I multiply this? He says this in 512. He says, people who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. (laughs) You would think it's the other way around, wouldn't you? I got loads of money, I should be sleeping good. But it's a funny thing how insomnia and wealth often go hand in hand. Again, what if I lose it? What if this doesn't work out? How do I invest it? Etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Then the other thing it brings is it brings more difficulties and more responsibilities. The more more difficulties and more responsibilities. The more I have, the more I have to lose. Right. I mean, the most simple thing you can think of, if you've ever spent money, like upgrading your house, putting new carpet in. I mean, you freak out the first time a pair of shoes touches your brand new carpet. But then you spill a little something and over a period of time, it's not as painful because ah, what the heck, you know, what's one cup of coffee versus some shoes and and that multiplies itself. So you take that to, you know, your your wealth or the more you have. When, when the depression hit, there were people who, they lost everything and they lost millions, you know. And back then, that was still multiply, that amount of money, so it's more painful. Here's what Solomon says in verse 13 and 14 of, of chapter 5. I've seen something terribly unfair. People get rich, but it does them no good. Suddenly, they lose everything in a bad business deal. Then they have nothing to leave for their children. God God chose money to be the acid test of our character. I don't know why. It's it's probably because money in many ways is how we view money, how we view wealth is a, a window into our lives. And Jesus, and so that goes for the person who has a lot and the person who doesn't have much. It's still a acid test of our character, of what's really going on in our lives. Jesus talked a lot about money. You read through the Gospels, and you realize that Jesus talked a lot about money. And I was thinking about the one story where the rich young ruler comes to him. He's a young man. He's, he's got all kinds of money and power, and, and he's a good guy. He's an upstanding citizen, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, he says, well, you know, fear God, keep his commands, love God, love people, love your neighbor. And he goes on to to tell that that to that young man and the rich young ruler realized he said he wanted to justify himself. And he said, all these I've kept. Do I lack anything? And Jesus knew right into his heart. And he said, take everything you have, sell it, give to the poor and follow me. Jesus doesn't tell every person with wealth to sell everything that they have and come follow them. Because not everybody with wealth is putting their hope in their money. But he knew that this rich young ruler was putting his hope in his money and his wealth. Because it says that after Jesus said that to him, he walked away sad because he was a man of great wealth. And so... Jesus knew what he needed at that point in time and that, that, that the difficulties that can come with being rich, the responsibilities that can come with being rich. How do you and I know if we're in love with money? How would you know? I, I thought of two simple things maybe for you to, to think about. First of all, would I be willing to sacrifice my family to get more? Would I be willing to sacrifice my closest relationships in order to have more money? Now, I'm not talking about sacrificing for your family. There's many people in this room that have to travel, have to work long hours, that have to put in extra hours to provide for your family. Please don't hear that. That's not what I'm talking about. There's a a sacrificing on the altar of more, my family and my close relationships, my church relationships, my deep relationships so that I can get ahead and have more and more and more so that I build my wealth. You, I hope hopefully you see there's a big difference there. Would you be willing to sac, uh, to sacrifice your character, your integrity, take a shortcut, lie, steal, do whatever it takes to get ahead? If that's true then you have a, a bad love for money. That needs to to be fixed and it needs to put your love towards God and your hope in God and not in your in your wealth. God never says don't be rich, but he does give a lot of warnings about not putting your hope in being rich. Big difference. Third question I want to ask you is this. We want to kind of look at is what does God want for us and what does he want from us regarding our money? What does he want for us and from us regarding our money? Remember I said earlier, people are in a prison an invisible prison regarding money and wealth, and it's a prison of debt, desire, etc., that's out of control. Well, I think God has given some simple keys that will let you out of this prison and give you the right perspective that God wants for us, and that if you'll apply what I'm getting ready to tell you, it's going to create great blessing in your life, blessing that goes beyond anything money can buy. First thing I think God wants for each one of us and from us is more thankfulness. You Write that down. He wants more thankfulness. God wants you and I to appreciate what we have. And that goes for the person in this room that would look around this room and say, well, I don't have as much as everybody else. It doesn't matter. Appreciating what you have. God meeting your needs. God... Giving you Jesus, giving you the most important things that are around you—family, friends, etc.—a real, lasting hope. He wants you to appreciate what you have. Thanksgiving is not just a one-day-a-year holiday; it's a lifestyle for a believer. It's a lifestyle. Um, anybody that's a parent or been a parent, you know, one of the best things that your kids can do for you is when they appreciate what you've done for them. Is that not true, parents? When your kids say, thank you, dad, for working hard. Thank you, mom, for for what you do. Thanks for these gifts. Thanks for little things. Thanks for making my lunch. Whatever it is, when your kids tell you thank you, you appreciate that. Well, how much more? You know, God who's, who's perfect in his, in his parenting of us. Solomon says this, And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. You're so busy enjoying the good things that are in your life, you're not busy enough to complain and think, I don't have enough. You're busy enjoying the normal, ordinary things of life. The ordinary things of life are means of worship. They're means of saying, God, thank you for what you've done. And when you include God in your ordinary life, it becomes an ultimate act of worship to God, which is an awesome thing. Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 7.14. He says, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. There are people who are going through some hard things in this room. You hear about it week after week after week in this room. And people that we know, we've all been touched by difficulties and difficult things. And there's this command in the New Testament, First Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I mean, no, that's a tough command. How do I give thanks for, you know, someone suddenly dying when I wasn't ready for it? How do I give thanks for loss, difficulty, relational struggles? How do you give thanks? Well, the only way you can give thanks is by realizing, getting into... God's viewpoint of everything and he knows the beginning from the end and he knows how everything's going to work out. And sometimes you're not thanking God for what happened. You're not thanking him for the trial. You're thanking him for what he's going to do in the midst of that and as a result of that. That's really important that that we, we capture that. Second thing that God wants for us is this. He wants more contentment. He wants you and I to experience more contentment. And so contentment is both an experience and an attitude. It's, I actually play a part in the process of being content, and so do you. It's enjoying what you have. And I've learned this. Thankfulness always leads to contentment. When, when I am, am being thankful on a daily basis, rather than complain complaining, which I'm really good at, Make me feel good. Anybody else good at complaining? Okay, good. Ah, just kidding. Thankfulness always leads to contentment. The the lack of thankfulness always leads to a discontentment. So if you're complaining about your spouse and you're frustrated, then you're not going to be content and you're going to think you need a new spouse. If you're complaining about your job and all that goes with that, you're not going to be content and think, I just need a new job. If you're complaining about... Anything you put fill in the blank, but when you begin to be thankful and say, "Lord, thank you for what you're doing," I give thanks in all circumstances because this is your will for me. You're growing in me in my life. The other, this was probably two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, you don't need to feel sorry for me in this, so I'm not looking for you to feel any sorrow, or if, if you want to give me extra prayers, great. But I, I'm not looking for for. Uh, You know, boohoo in this. I get the Monday blues, right? Because Sunday is a big day for a church. Sunday is a big day for pastors. You know, you spend all week preparing a message, getting ready for worship, et cetera, et cetera. I want people to experience God. We want people to experience God's love. I want people's lives to be changed. So, one of the most awesome things that we experience in ministry is to watch people grow. They go from here to here, and it's like, yes. But then, when you watch people regress, it's also very painful. And so, it, it, this particular Monday, I was just—you know—you you kind of have to fight. We call this in ministry PMS, post-ministry syndrome. And you—you you get that on, on a Monday morning, and it's like, you know, did I did that really? Was it effective? Did this really, you know, to change people's lives, et cetera, et cetera? And on this Monday, Janelle, I remember I was sitting shotgun, and she was driving, and I was like. You know, are we really having an effect? And I was just kind of bumming and, and, and complaining a little bit. And and I remember, I said, why don't you feel like I do on Mondays? Because Mondays is our day off, and it's the day we try not to talk about, you know, church or whatever. We try to have a Sabbath day together. And all of a sudden, she just says to me, she says, well... I'm just thankful we get to do this and that we get to do this together and God provides for us and I'm just thankful for you know the little things and the lives that have been changed and as she was saying that I was just like <clears throat> thank you so much you know it was it was a gentle reminder that yeah be thankful dummy you know when when you're lacking contentment in whatever you see in life or you know your career be thankful for God's hand in your life And it was convicting to me. And it made me realize that, you know, being thankful is a game changer. It leads to contentment. He says in chapter 6, verse 9, he says, It's better to enjoy what we have than to always want something else. Because that makes no more sense than chasing the wind. (laughs) So happiness and contentment is not getting whatever we want, but it's enjoying what we have. God enjoys watching us enjoy what we have, if you will. That's worship. And then you know what God wants from us as well? He wants more generosity, more thankfulness, more contentment. And he wants more generosity. I've learned this. Life is a test. And it's a trust. It's a test to see... What will I do with what God's given me? It's a trust to see what will I do with, with my time, with my talent, and my treasures that God's given me. It's a, it's a test, and it's a trust that God wants you know, us to know. What are we going to do with what we've been given? He says this in uh, Ecclesiastes 11.1. 1, he says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. One of the paraphrased translations says it this way. Give generously for your gifts will return to you later. So the more generous you are, God promises to reward in eternal life. Where we store our, 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 where our heart is, there our treasure is, Jesus said. I read recently, you guys may know this, but the guy that is the president and CEO of uh, the shoe company, Tom's Shoe Company. I mean, know what I'm talking about there? Mostly ladies, right? But but I, I don't know if he's to make Toms, guys and gir- girls shoes or whatever. But I don't know the whole story. But I do know the heartbeat behind this guy. He was on uh, Survivor, and he was he was. They had gone to Argentina and some other places, and he saw the poverty in these places, and he saw kids running around with no shoes, and he. Uh, there was a, a disease that you can get from walking around too much with no shoes that actually can, you know, affect your feet and you lose your feet and all kind of things. So he started a company that would be a company that basically you give everything away. And this whole process of Tom's shoes is every time you buy a pair of shoes, they give a pair of shoes away. So you buy a pair, they, they give a, a pair of shoes away to some, somebody that's Im- impoverished. I thought, that's brilliant. What a great way to live your life, to be generous, not just to start a company so that I make big money and have all that I need, but that I'm using my time, talent, and treasures to bless other people. I've read about a a guy that's um, an Austrian billionaire. He had so much money and so much wealth that uh, he got sick of it. And he's not, he's only in his 50s. And he got tired of his wealth, and so he's on a mission to give away every penny that he has over the next ten years so that he's gonna die broke. His whole plan is to die broke. And he was a billionaire. So he's given all given he has a plan to, to help people in third world countries start their own businesses, etc, etc. etc. So he wants to to die broke. I like that. Look what Paul tells Timothy in first Timothy six, seventeen and nineteen. They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. When we were in Scottsdale, Arizona a couple weeks ago, I went for a jog, 105 out. I don't recommend that. And here was, obviously I'm from Colorado, right? So I went for a little jog and I came in and I was overheated, sweating, you know, and I was just like, thank you Lord for air conditioning. And then I thought, what a first world problem that is, man. You know, thank you, Lord. What would I do without air conditioning? I'm going to die. I'm so hot. And we have so many first world problems. Here's what I want you to get from this. And I'm challenging myself. I promise you, I'm challenging myself when I tell you this. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. It's easy for someone in this room to say, "Oh, he's not talking about me. He's talking about so and so. He's talking about the Joneses, right? He's talking about my my neighbors who have more things and more money and all of that. No, he's talking about every person in this room. The person in this room that has the littlest amount is still richer than 92% of the rest of the world. Us in the United States, Canada, Europe, it's 8% of the world versus 92% of the world lives in poverty, below a third world standard. And we saw that when we went to the Dominican Republic. Many of you have been to other places where you see poverty that will blow your mind. So whenever you think you don't, you're, not, you're not rich, I want you to think about someone in a sugarcane village in the Dominican Republic who don't, doesn't know where their next meal is going to come from or running around with no shoes. And, and yet they're still doing life. And they're still trusting in God. To not have a cell phone or to not have cable or one of the luxuries of, of life that we have as Americans doesn't make us not rich. We have what we need. We need to keep, keep that before us. Generosity is, is not just for those who are well off. It's for all of us. Generosity is for every person in this room that will realize how well we off we are compared to the rest of the world. Here's what I want you to get. Instead of letting your income dictate your lifestyle, let your lifestyle dictate what you do with your income. Total different way of looking at it. Instead of letting your income dictate your lifestyle, let your lifestyle dictate what you do with your income. Let's be generous people with God's wealth and God's stuff. Last thing God wants for us and from us is he wants more faithfulness, more faithfulness. Solomon concludes the book when he says, Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. God wants us to be faithful. He promises to reward faithfulness in the life to come. And we reap the rewards of faithfulness in this life. But in the life to come, he promises that when we were faithful, whether it was a small amount or a big amount, he promises to reward us. And he wants us not to just be faithful, but faith-filled. And to believe him and believe his promises. Whenever I see the word command in scripture, often people see the word command or if you hear the, the ten commandments. You know, do you think joy and, and awesome? No, you think, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a measuring rod. It's a, it's a taskmaster. I better stay in line. Listen, we need to get rid of that view. God's commands are for our good. He loves us and he knows what's best for each one of us. And he promises to to reward us. When Janelle told me a couple weeks ago, I'm I'm thankful. And that thankful dagger went in my heart that I was being discontent because I wasn't thankful. I thought, okay, here's one wing that you fly life with. Thankfulness. The other is faithfulness. I can control my attitude of thankfulness. I can't control life around me. I can't control people, I can't control the stock market, I can control my faithfulness. I can keep those two parts of my life and so can you. So what I thought we could do is just kind of a way of of concluding. I want to read you something from Proverbs 30 and this is from Solomon as well. He says, two things I ask of you Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. What a perspective. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but my, give me my daily needs. I'll be content in that. I think that's a prayer for prisoners to money. If you're in a prison of money today, whether it be debt or desire, Pray this prayer. God, I don't need need to be rich and I I, I don't want to be impoverished. Just give me what I need for today. And as you pray that, I believe God's going to, that's the key to get you out of the prison. Learn what it means to find satisfaction, significance and security in the Lord. When you learn that, you're going to live a whole different life. Commit to not letting... Money be your master. Jesus said that you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. You can't serve God and money. God's got to come first and be the center of my life. Otherwise, stuff and money are going to rule. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so simple a child can understand. And it's so profound that theologians... Talking about it forever, but here's the beauty of the gospel: all of us fall short of the standard of God, the perfection of God, and we were in trouble. For the wages of sin is death. We fall, fall all have fallen short of God's glory, but yet Jesus came and He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross, rose from the dead, so that we could have. New life. He said, if you put your faith in him and the gospel, he'll give you, you'll be a new creation. That doesn't mean all your problems go away. It doesn't mean money problems go away or relational problems go away, but it, it means that you have the most important thing in your life settled. And that's, where am I going when I die? Then money and all these other cares began to take a back seat to that. And if today you've never Put your trust and hope in Jesus. And you would know, you if you were to be honest, you'd say, you know, my hope is probably in my money. My hope's probably in my spouse. My hope's probably in my career. Those things can be taken away from you. And they're not they're, it's not ultimate security. But your relationship with Jesus, that's secure. That can't be taken. If you've never put your trust in him, today's the day to do that. Today's the day to do that. Put your hope and your faith in him. Then come join us for baptism this afternoon and declare your your discipleship unto Jesus before him and that you identify with his death and resurrection, your church and his church. Stand to your feet with me, I want to pray. If today you, you know, during this time you found out about baptism and and you want to be baptized, um, come talk to Darcy and Annette up front or Brian or I'll be out at the door. We'll give you simple directions where to go and, and what to do. It's actually really a simple simple thing. It's a decision of obedience. So we're excited for what God's going to do. Lord, we don't want money to be our God. Money can't satisfy. We confess that. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive all of us where we're off and how we see money as our stuff and rather seeing it as yours in the first place. I pray that you would help each person in this room that is somewhat in bondage to money, in a prison of money, whether it's debt or or too much love for it. I pray just for your grace to envelop us and, and, and overwhelm us so that we see you see beyond the the love of wealth we pray as the Proverbs teach us to pray that God you wouldn't give us poverty nor riches but our daily bread the things that we need on a daily basis Lord we don't want to sin and lack integrity because we lack and we don't want to have so much that we forget that Everything we have has been provided by you. So we acknowledge that today. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your love, this community. Help us to honor you and how we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you as you go. Again, you want to be baptized, come.